I promised you last week I was going to tell you the story about the, the Christian donut hole. Nobody remembered. Never mind. I'm about telling you now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I better because you're going to sit there and wonder the whole time. What is he talking about? This is a true story. <clears throat> I was in Spring Arbor, Michigan at one of our college churches. So it's a large church. It's got a college, Spring Arbor University attached to it. So it's kind of a big place. But the 830 service, I think I was probably 20 years younger than the average person in the room. Okay, so you're with me now. You got an image of that, right? So this, it's got this sloping sort of traditional auditorium with pews and all of this. And I'm sitting off to, way off to the side, so stage right, where all the preachers sit and in worship. And all of a sudden, this thing catches my eye out of the corner. I see this little donut hole rolling. Now, it's not rolling like it's just fast and stop. It's like intentionally rolling. It's going somewhere. And I'm sitting there looking. It goes all the way down the aisle, all the way to the altar rail and stops. And I just, I, I looked at the lady behind me, I'm like, what was, it? and I look just up the road, and there was a student about three quarters of the way up, and she's purple, embarrassed. <laughs> In all my days as a preacher's kid, I have never seen a donut hole give its, give its life to the Lord. But I'm pretty sure <laughs> it was so amazing, because it, it just stayed there and did its thing for a while, and then, then you could see the spirit of gluten come right off it. Next thing you know, I look over, it's a, it's a kale leaf. No, that's a, that's a joke. But anyway, <laughs> I've never seen a donut hole get right with Jesus. Well, I told that to the 830 service, and they're like, like, never mind. It's okay. Let's just turn in your Bibles, and then they were with me so for about 22 seconds. That's the story of the donut hole, so felt like I had to tell you that. Um, today, I get the, uh, the, the task of wrapping up our study in the book of Corinthians, and we're going to look at a couple of passages to begin with, and then we're going to try to find uh, what would be an elegant summary of what we've been studying for the last nine weeks. So uh, follow along on the screen, and we'll read these, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 1.10, beginning of the book. That little section is titled, A Church Divided Over Leaders. We don't know any of those, but anyway. Verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, this is Paul writing, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. 1 Corinthians 1.10. 1 Corinthians 16.13. I'm grabbing for handles here to figure out how can we summarize in Paul's own words what he's written. Later, much later in the book, 1 Corinthians 16 reads this way, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Classic Paul. And because it's Paul, and I'm going to grab some words from Ephesians 4, because he kind of had a couple of different themes he wrote about every, every time he wrote. Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 6, this one is entitled, Unity and Maturity in the Body of Christ. He writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. You know where I'm going. Through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open our, our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds today, that we may see you, that we may see ourselves, that we may, that we may see the world through the wisdom and the writings of Paul and through the Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Every time Paul commits ink to parchment, right, or every time he sits down with his laptop, it seems that unity and love were on his radar. That was a joke for this section. Don't look. They're all teenagers. They don't like you to look at them. <coughs> sitting down with his little Google book or whatever you call that. It seems that unity and love are always on his radar. And I ask myself, after reading lots and lots and lots of Paul over the years, what, 
Why is he constantly writing on the same themes? Does any of this sound like good advice? Is any of this still relevant? Maybe the more profound question in reading Paul. Is any of this still, does it still have sea legs today? Here's a profound, how is it possible that a man writing 2,000 years ago could say anything that would still be relevant today? Have you ever asked yourself that question? It's a healthy question. It's a good question to ask. Don't be afraid to ask hard questions of the text. How is it possible that 2,000 years ago, his writings specifically to a group of people in a specific place could still be relevant today? Has anything changed in the last 2,000 years? Boy, I sure want to hope it has. You want to hope that too, don't you? So if you're a pessimist in the room, you need some gloom and doom to feel good about the world. Let me give you a little bit here. 2,000 years of writing about unity and love, and we've still not nailed it. If you need pessimism to feel good, hang on to that, right? If you're an optimist in the room today, and you need a little silver lining to feel well, to take a deep breath, right? Here you go. The vision that Paul had then is still the vision that remains today, and that is that we can actually live in unity. We still dream of a place where we can not only survive, but we can thrive in diversity and, dis- and, and difference. And I have to tell you, if you're an optimist looking for a silver lining, we do. We do it all the time. We thrive across these fault lines all the time. There's lots of cables running around and over the walls in our lives that we were told you can't do that. This happens all the time. Think of the ways that we differ. Think about, the, think about don't turn your head, just think about the person sitting next to you. If you're married to them, that's your fault. I'm just saying, the other person. <laughs> you might think that what you love most about A and C is that you finally found a little place where everyone agrees with you on everything. But I'm here to suggest to you that that's not actually realistic and that's probably not what you actually love most about ANC because we don't. We don't all agree on everything, do we? And we sit in that diversity every day, don't we? Any nods in the room? Let me offer you a little example that happened at Wade Lentz's house recently. Of all nights, it was election night. (laughs) Something like 30 different guys gathered there and um, I'm not going to explain what Pipes and Porter Night is. You can, because of the podcast, um, now somebody's interested. I'm going to get email. What's Pipes and Porter Night? Well, we get to get, the men of ANC get together periodically, and we have a good time. Well, Bo picked election night, and I'm like, that's a dumb move. So all the policy wonks <laughs> stayed home, and the rest of us showed up. And what's so fascinating about that night is that I sat in Wayland's garage, some in the kitchen, some in the garage, And we were watching the returns all on our handheld devices, right? Because we all have that. Some were ecstatic and some were speechless. One single event devastating to some, vindicating for others, the same event. What's funny is that things never went south, did they, Wade? Did they go south in the kitchen? Because they didn't go south in the garage. Things never went south. Conversation never went sideways. Harsh words were never sprayed around the room indiscriminately. And brotherhood was the color and the tone and the smell of the evening, brotherhood. How can that be, you ask? Well, you know what we call that? We call that community, okay? That's right. Way more than just agreement, we call it unity, not unanimity, and there's a fundamental difference. Unity is much bigger, much more robust, can handle way more than unanimity can. It's a tapestry of lives woven together for a common good, a common way of being in the world, a common way of living out the mission of Jesus in South Austin much bigger than just the opinions in the room. Now, I know I sat in that garage with men who voted completely opposite than I did, and yet unity was preserved. 
So although Paul writes to this issue 2,000 years ago, and in many ways we've not even begun, in certain ways we have, and we've figured this out, right? Think of how fickle it would be if what united us was our opinions. If opinions were the only glue that bound the American church together today, there would be no American church, right? At this point, most American believers are either pointing fingers, trying to rebrand quickly, or protesting protesters. And that goes both sides of the line. People are scrambling for an identity, trying to figure out what went wrong, what went right. So if opinion united us and made us one, we're in big trouble in America. We're fractured. And just as an aside, let me just tell you this. We need to learn to hold space for each other's experiences. Some people are genuinely afraid. And that is not something to laugh at. And some people feel genuinely vindicated after eight dark years of an administration that they disagreed with on every point. And their sense of vindication, their sense of finally their moment has come is not something to laugh at. These are real experiences. So that's about all we're going to say about that. But you get what I'm saying. The same event, ecstasy and devastation simultaneously. If you needed political unanimity to thrive, right, you better book a flight. And I'm not sure where to tell you to go because I'm not sure you're going to find it. But we're looking at a couple of tough years, okay? So, so, so my point is that it's more than opinion and more than unanimity that binds us together. Bottom line, our evangelical opinions in America are not in unity. They're not in unison anymore. Some are ready actually to even jettison the term or the brand evangelical. There's some profound theological debate going on about that right now. Is it even recoverable at this point? Some people are asking. I don't know where you fall on that. I'm just using that as an example. But it wasn't coincidence that our pastoral staff decided uh, to spend nine weeks studying the book of 1 Corinthians. We knew what was coming. We knew where we are as a church, and so here we have been. There are other ways to understand Paul, and Paul is one of these writers who you could push him through a thousand grids or a thousand frameworks and come up with something useful almost no matter how you do it. But here's what I'm suggesting. 1 Corinthians is a treatise for how to navigate the shark-infested waters of disagreement while remaining in unity because there's sharks in the water, and yet unity can prevail. Let me recontextualize us for a summary of 1 Corinthians, and for sports fans, let's just call this the Sports Center highlight reel of the evening. These are the points in 1 Corinthians. I never watched Sports Center, but I know you do, so that's okay. I'm deep right now into the crown. Anybody into the crown? Am I so alone in here? Well, raise your hand for Pete's sakes. Unbelievable stuff. Unbelievable stuff. I'm so glad they televised the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Did you know that was con- controversial? Now you got watching to do. Anyway, let me give you the Sports Center highlight reel. Here it is. 1 Corinthians in a couple of points. This is a letter to a church that Paul founded, a church that he began, right? But that had fallen into discord and disunity. Factions, divisions, partitions, walls went up. Paul tries to convince people who have actually ample reason to part ways to do exactly the opposite, to do what? To stay in community. And he's going to ultimately say that the revolutionary act of remaining in unity despite differences is actually the greatest thing the world will ever see as proof to the faith that we profess. This is what Paul's going to say. He's writing to people who are falling into factions, and he's going to say, you hold this together, and this is the essential oils of our witness. I don't know why essential oils just came out of my mouth. (laughs) So dumb. Third point, the high point of this letter, and I would say the pinnacle of Paul is this idea that love is what binds us. And he's going to move us there to 1 Corinthians 13 eventually. 
Not our observance of the law, not the way we live it out, not the music we listen to, right? Not our opinions about hot topics or even our favorite teachers of the faith. Love is what allows us to remain a people despite our profound and entrenched differences. That's 1 Corinthians in three points. Now, I say this a lot. Paul will eventually dissolve every distinction, every division, every dividing wall into something brand new. He's going to say all those walls drop, and he's introducing us to this new community where love is the law, supremely expressed in the man, Jesus Christ. So catch this. Paul's not writing to straighten out belief systems so much as he's writing to tell people how to live. And that's a fundamental difference. Because the moment your text becomes ways of clarifying what you believe, disconnected from how you live, you're not reading Paul. That got real quiet. The gospel is about living in a particular way. He's writing specifically to articulate a way of being in community and preserving that in the face of a very strong wind of difference and discord. Paul writes to the Corinthian church because he's concerned about the future of that church. And what you may or may not know is that he arrives in Corinth freshly off the boat from Athens where he did not successfully plant a church. The apostle Paul failed in Athens if that was his objective. We have bits and pieces of his uh, stunning oratory before the council of philosophers in Athens. But just know this, Paul knew how profound it was that there'd be something as the root of the church other than unanimity and agreement. Very often, the initial response to the gospel creates people who march like ants, lock, step. We go to the same concerts, we do the same things, we listen to the same radio. And as you're born into this faith that so upsets and upends your life, we look like ants in the beginning. And this is infancy, and we walk this way, and we ought not disregard that season of someone's life. It's fundamentalist almost by design because you've got to have a structure to be born into. But eventually, you move past diapers and rattles and little spoons with squash and little jars with babies' heads on it. And you move into deeper things. I'm not making this imagery up. Paul uses this whole thing about, first I fed you milk and you're not ready for meat. But, but the beginning of our faith is often born into that initial response, which is we march like ants. We all do the same predictable thing. One title works for all of us, from Mississippi to Arkansas to New York to California. And then you grow up, and Paul is writing as they're growing up, and then all of a sudden, profound differences begin to emerge. And then what? And this is why he writes. Think about some of the things we've studied in the last few weeks through that framework of unity versus unanimity. Let me just hit a few of them. Number one, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses lawsuits, right, between brothers and sisters. Ironically, I got a summons to serve in a jury today. Isn't that weird? My daughters are trying to figure out how many months I'm going to be gone on this capital murder, sequestered thing. Going to miss Christmas. I just know it. Anyway. But Paul addresses believers in the church in Corinth who were suing each other. Essentially what they were doing was using the public arena to air the dirty laundry of the community of faith. But true unity is robust enough to sustain difference without division. With our personal rights, when our personal rights are violated and stepped on, we don't sue each other. Paul's going to say we love endures all things. Love suffers all things. It keeps no record of wrongs. Unity must remain. What's wrong with lawsuits in the public arena? We're, we're opting for something other than the unity of the body of Christ. That's the issue of lawsuits. The second issue in, he writes about in 1 Corinthians 6 is the, is the discussion about sexual immorality. We talked about this earlier. Our sexuality in the world functions within a different set of boundaries than those around us. It's a different bounded set for us as people of faith. 
We are to prefer one another, not seeking our own good, not demanding that our needs get met. What am I doing? I'm paraphrasing ideas from 1 Corinthians 13, pressing them through this idea of sexual immorality. It's different for us. Our bodies are sacred, and they're to be unified with Christ, and only then can they be unified with one another. Unity is the law of intimacy, and I would say the only real bottom fundamental piece that has to be in place of intimacy is unity in Christ. Later in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes about the subject of food sacrifice to idols. That's a bit of an odd one, not exactly something we're concerned about. Were you worried about where the chicken breast came from that you put on the table last night? Maybe it was offered to idols, I don't know. Not a big deal today, but think about it through the lens of unity and unanimity. Again, the law of love that unifies us as a community, that unifies the weak and the strong, the mature and the recently born, okay, requires us to exercise our liberties with discretion and consideration, and Paul writes about this with many different subjects to several different churches. If you cannot eat this meat killed, to a, killed uh, and, and offered in a pagan ritual to a false god, if you can't do that in faith, then Paul would say, then don't. It's the unity of the weak and the strong that matters that proves that we are the church. Love takes the weaker member into consideration when exercising freedom found in Christ. Unity can remain, even though two people would say, I absolutely cannot, and the other would say, you're a fool. Paul would say, unity can still remain. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about some abuses around the, the, the table of communion, uh, what the, the early church called the Eucharist, which is just another word for fellowship. For us, it's crackers and candles and juice and lamps, but for them, it was a meal around which they all gathered every week. This was the center, central thing that they would do. It wasn't just crackers and juice, it was a meal. And what happened was, it seems that the rich, the wealthy, were abusing their prerogative and the leisure hours of their day, and they were showing up early, and they were consuming all of it, leaving nothing but crumbs for the poor. How ironic, said Alanis, right? Imagine taking the meal that is supposed to prove that the world, that, 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 that Christ is present to the world in its brokenness. Imagine taking that and breaking it down into socioeconomic divisions and disunity. It's the meal that breaks through the pell-mell, the dumpy daily reality of our daily lives and where Christ says, I promise to be present. Imagine taking that of all symbols and saying, nope, we're on this side, you're on that side. If all you get is crumbs, that's on you. Paul says unity can remain. It's the point of the Eucharist. It's the point of the table. You have never once in your life gathered yourself to the table of the Eucharist in any sense 100% in agreement with people around you. That's the mystery of the table. We do this thing because we've been told to do it in the presence of a diverse community. So here's the key. Ultimately, the concrete proof that we are the people of Jesus is not that we agree, or worse, that we throw out those who do not. The concrete proof that we are the people of God, the people of Jesus in the world, is that we remain united in love despite our differences. Does that resonate, or is that dissonance for you? We remain fiercely committed to sticking it out for each other, even under the immense pressure of disagreement, even when the public wants to know where you stand, we can stay together. According to John, the apostle, the beloved, he would later say that it's this love, right, for one another that proves we are God's people. Anybody been around the body of Christ long enough to remember the song? Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know. What's interesting about that song is that's in a minor key, isn't it? Because it's a morbid subject, because are we united? Oh, God, 
Put that in E minor. Right? There's something that endures. There is something that never fails that is greater than unanimity and all of the spiritual bells and whistles combined added to that. There is something greater and it's called love and it's all that matters in the following sense. If we have all other things together, all ducks in a row except love, we are as empty as a violin, as pointless as the creaking of a rusty gate. We're the laughing stock of the world, one writer would go on to say, Pathetic would be my choice of words. If we cannot remain in love through difference. So let me read some paraphrased verses that we've been tickling for several weeks now from 1 Corinthians 13. It won't be on your screen. Just listen. If I speak with human elegance and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all the mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I owe to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I do not love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love, writes Paul. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for the self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Oh, he could have left that out. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle. He could have left that out too. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. He certainly could have left that out. Doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never fails, Paul would say. So what am I suggesting? That we seek unity instead of unanimity as a body. That we learn to hold space for each other even when we disagree. This is the purpose of the letter of Paul. This is what he wrote to the first Corinthian church. And I think this is a message that's valid for us today. So as we conclude, I want to get super practical. We don't always do this. But in your bulletin, you may have noticed something interesting, an insert. I want to read through this. I want to just, something that I'm calling the helpful principles for disagreement. If you don't have a bulletin and you didn't get one, Trey's got them. Trey and Bo can pass them out. Let me preface this. Has anybody been reading this the entire time? It's way better than what I've been saying, so just read that. It's good. Anybody need one? Raise your hand if you need one. I'm just going to suggest you get one, whether, you have, whether your spouse or your, somebody you came with has one or not. Take one, because you're going to want to put this in your Bible and keep this for a while, because this, this is going to cook your goose, okay? This is going to file down some, some, some rough edges. One of the problems with preaching is that you've got to eat your words before you get up here, and it's been a long week trying to deal with this, because what's on that paper leaves no room for hiding. What are we call, we're just going to call this the helpful principles of disagreement, Okay? I want to read through these. Let's have some interaction with this. All done? Passed out? Austin New Church is committed to becoming a place where all people can belong. I'd die for that. That's worth setting up shop and losing some things for. We believe that real community is the result of courageous engagement and redemptive conversations even when we don't have a consensus on a particular issue that we're facing. If we honor each other, extend grace to all, and recognize our own lenses, we can remain in unity, become the church we all dreamed of. 
even when we disagree. To that end, the following commitments matter to us, and there's five. So I want to read these, and then we'll, we'll have just a brief moment for someone to chime in at the end of each of these if this is something that resonates with you or doesn't. Number one, this is a commitment. Now listen, look at me. Nobody's going to be 100% on this. It's a commitment. We're moving in this direction if you choose to accept this as, a, as, as an invitation. Number one, each person engaged in this chooses to see ourselves as sinful, fallible, and finite people. And therefore acknowledge that no matter what we believe or how passionately we believe it, on any given matter, it is possible for us to be wrong. We call this our commitment to owning our own lenses. You know, there's no access to anything outside of the filter through which you speak and hear and and experience and live. And the only wise way to engage others is to acknowledge that lens and say, listen, I believe this with my whole life, but it's possible it's possible that I'm not fully correct on this. It's possible that my, the sum total of my life experiences simply have not disposed me to see this from someone else's angle. Therefore, I'm in community. Why? Because I can't have every experience in the world. But I can certainly live with this principle that says, I have a deeply convicted view, but it's mine. And it doesn't have to be yours. Does that resonate? Is that easy? We could just camp there and spend the next 40 years trying to get to that. Anybody have something they want to say about that? Give me a, give me a, give me a, where does it settle? Uh, uh, I'm not. I just feel like that's super in line with Isaiah 55 where it says his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways. Like if we can all acknowledge that when we're having our really strong thoughts, I feel like that can breed unity. Think about how preposterous it would be to assume that you know the full mind of God on a subject. That's not even, like, all of us hear that and say, yeah, no, 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 that's ridiculous. Now, backtrack to the last time your veins were popping out of your neck and you were ready just to, just to ring, throttle somebody because they could not agree with you on a particular subject and back away from that and say, just, just know, just know, you can be as deeply convicted as you need to be, but yours is one line of, one line of sight. Make sense? Whenever you do a swimming match, I'll get to you, hang on, Lee. Whenever uh, my girls swim down at UT, uh, when it's a competitive match and it's a U.S. swimming whatever sanctioned match, there's two timers in every lane, one from each team. Why? Because if it's your kid in the pool, you're going to tend to see that touch a little earlier than the next person. And so what do we do? You put two timers, sometimes three, and you average between them. Summer league, you got three timers per lane. They take the top and the low times, and they take the middle time. Why? Because you've got a different line of sight. Own it but know that it's your lens. Lee. Knowing it's, and having that, that conversation with others, there's, there's still stuff that, that um, as long as the conversation can be understanding and civil, I, I can't say like, well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and that's your argument. You don't believe that, that's okay. I, I still feel like I have to come to it. That, that that's, that's the truth. And as I understand it, human beings, of course I can Right, right. Not the other stuff that's like, well, I don't know if that's, it's got to be the exact same. There are certain things that's like, well, that's still a question. Yeah. What we're trying to build in here is just the, just the potential, just the possibility that you could be wrong. Because think about the things that have changed over your life that you have modified your, your take on, modified your belief on over time. You've deepened your knowledge of, 
you've deepened your experience of, you've found different words to articulate, it's possible that yours is not the only view. Now, I, I'm aware when you do a long question that the people listening to the podcast didn't hear the question. So this is why you jump in your Prius and you come and see us so you don't miss what Lee just said, right? But if you're listening to the podcast and you need these points, email me at jason at austinnewchurch.com and I'll send you these points. Point number two. Here's another thing we're committed to. Choose to see anyone across the line, you fill in the blank, whatever matters most to you. It could be Cowboys fans versus Chargers. I don't know what the deal is. <clears throat> anyone, choose to see anyone across the line from us as someone who genuinely believes what they believe is true, good, beautiful, and of the Lord. Now, this, is, this goes to generosity, okay? This goes to not assuming you know someone's motives. This is a deep, deep kind of humble generosity, we choose to believe that the person across the line from us actually loves us. Now we're going to ratchet it up, okay? Therefore, because they love us and because they're convinced of what they believe, they will naturally want us to believe as they do. If a person does not want me to believe as they do, their beliefs are either not deeply held or they don't actually love me. For this reason, so we choose to believe that overtures for conversation that seek to persuade us are offerings of love, not acts of disrespect and violence. We call this our commitment to love and integrity. Is that difficult? Listen, my dukes come up, and you're gonna get the the guns of Navarone aimed at you. If you come to me and I'm sensing violent attack, I'm going to respond with aggressive self-defense, right? Unless, unless I can extend you the grace and say, there's a chance that the veins in your neck are there because of love, And what you're actually trying to do is convince me to walk away from a cliff that you think might be the end of me, and I will choose that invitation to converse with you as an overture of love. Think about, now, now, I know Thanksgiving is coming. When we all eat that horrible bird, there just isn't any way to make turkey taste good, I challenge you. It's just, turkey doesn't turn up in Mexican cooking, and there's a reason, because it's not good. Anyway. (laughs) God's greatest revelation was Jesus Christ. His second greatest was Mexican food. And if you argue with that, you're going to see the veins pop out. No, but but listen, Thanksgiving is the time of year where we all fantasize about being with family, and then we get around the table and we realize, oh my God, there's literally nothing we can all talk about. (laughs) Except the kids and swim club and things, because, you know, sports are relatively benign, right? You can't talk Christian schools versus public schools. You can't talk Democrats versus Republicans versus independents. You can't talk about much of anything without there being this... Tension, and yet my challenge to you, I'm gonna have to eat these words up in Lakey in a few days because we're gonna do this too. We string the lights under the trees and we eat outside like we do in Texas and we're gonna have this same awkward meal around awkward issues. Here's my invitation to you. Consider how it might change everything if you just popped up a filter that said, any antagonistic challenge to me, I'm just gonna choose first to see it as love because when you're persuaded that Toyotas rock, you want all your neighbors to own Toyotas, don't you? right? Think about it. We persuade others, and then we don't extend generosity and grace when they try to persuade us. My challenge is to change your way of thinking and say, no, wait, hang on. I'm not going to respond in self-defense because I don't think that's violence. That's an invitation to clarify. Now, am I suggesting you step into spaces where you're voiceless and you're chastised for having a voice? No, don't do that. Opt out. In your 40s, you'll figure this out. You don't have to have that conversation with your in-laws if that's awkward for you. But What I am saying is that challenge, I just nailed somebody's turkey. I just shot your turkey. (laughs) Don't deep fat fry a frozen turkey. Google it. Anyway, 
choose to move in the direction of seeing that as love, and it changes the color of the conversation. Can you see how that might have some potential? Keep this around. Put this in your Bible or whatever book you're going to read over Thanksgiving and call yourself to that commitment. Commitment number three, remind ourselves constantly that Jesus said our unity would bear witness to him and lead the world to know that he was sent by the Father. Think about what he wrote in John 17 there. We must also remind ourselves that Jesus said people will know we are disciples by our love. That's how they they will know we're not imposters because we actually do this stuff. Now, love in the place of agreement and unanimity? No, Jesus says love your neighbor, love your enemy. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Therefore, our determination to remain in unity and love is controversial conversa- in controversial conversations is fundamental to our witness as followers of Jesus. You want to know why your family doesn't care what you believe? Here's a hard question. Is it because you're antagonistic and judgmental and fundamentalist and you're square thinking and nothing, nothing's right but you, you and you're the only one and, and all of it? Nobody's ever going to want that. Nobody's ever going to want that. Trust me. And if that's the kind of gospel we preach, game over because millennials are not having that. You can laugh at them. You can scorn. They got the keys. We're now in the back seat. We'll be in the trunk soon enough and then we'll be in the ground after that. <laughs> Listen to me. They're not taking this. They're not taking this. It's either got to have the smell, it's got to have the hue, it's got to have the backdrop of love, robust love that can endure difference or game over. They're not coming to our buildings anymore. You can build the brick and mortar you want to build and put a steeple on it, have the best choir in the nation and a bass player who whistles, it's game over. They're not having it. You hear me? I'm about to get excited up in this place. I got to let it go. Commitment to a unified witness to be able to stand in front of the world and say, we are not in in unanimous agreement on this, but we love each other anyway. Point number three. Point number four. Trust that Jesus meant it when he said that he would send the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin. Meaning, there's a player on stage that does the conviction and it's not the church. It's the Holy Spirit. This is the promise. This is the presence of God in the world today in a way that Christ the man is no longer present. The Holy Spirit is here in all points, available at all, available at all times, walking all human consciousness towards an awareness of sin and repentance. It doesn't take us to convince the world, to convict the world of sin. We live a witness, a robust, an airtight witness around love and difference, and we can do that, and the Holy Spirit can be relied on to come on stage and have that aria at just the right moment where people, their heart is not is not ashamed, but they're drawn through the kindness of God to repentance. It's not our work or the role of the church to convict one another of sin. Our work is to seek the Spirit together, to pray for one another's receptivity to that Spirit, and to depend on the kindness of God to lead us to conviction and repentance. We call this our commitment to let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. If we could push the American evangelical witness through this grid, only allowing things that come through this, uh, that survive and, and, and can be about unity and love instead of conviction and condemnation. If we could press our public discourse through this, very little would come out the other side. I gotta simmer down. I know the Cowboys are playing at noon. Point number five. Trey's like, thank you. And this is important. Understand that there can be more than a single interpretation of a particular scripture. Now look at me. If this makes your heart pound, hang with me. There can be more than one binary interpretation of a scripture, right? Faithful minds have disagreed for centuries on key biblical biblical doctrines. And while dialogue around biblical truth always matters, did you catch that? It always matters to grind it out in dialogue and in love. 
It kills community when we argue that our take is the only legitimate view. Here's how you hear this in the media today, and this is what we are deciding to do. For this reason, we refrain from using high versus low view of Scripture. Listen to me. If If you've not been in the church long enough to know, that's the nastiest little label that you can be labeled with. That's the nastiest little thing people can say, oh, well, they've got a low view of Scripture. Let me interpret that for you. They're wrong. Oh, well, we have a high view of Scripture. Listen, we are committed to a humble approach to the text that says, Holy Spirit, make it live and breathe and help us in our disbelief to understand what you're doing with this. That's fundamentally different than saying this is the only way to interpret this. Take your wallet from your back pocket and slide it into your front pocket when you hear that going on in the room because it's going to cost you something. Why? Because it will be somebody's fickle application of where they think the line should be drawn. It'll last 20 years and then it will all of a sudden become fundamentalist and will become harsh and hard because they got to draw the line, interestingly enough, right around their own little addictions and brokenness. The Bible is dynamic. I've got the highest view of Scripture possible, and that is that we bring this text in the presence of a community before God and say, help us understand what you're saying, what you have always said, what you want to say. Do you know, we were totally convinced in the church that race was a theological construct that certain people ought to be disallowed from privilege because God said so. We were totally convinced in the church until we weren't. And then all of a sudden, we weren't convinced anymore. Oh, there's a new interpretation. Listen, This text is living and breathing. It will transform us as people. It will change our communities if we allow it. But it is never just one take and every other take is wrong. I gotta, tell me to chill because I'm about to. If you can sweat on a day when it's 30 degrees out, you know you're talking too much. It kills community when we argue that our take is the only one. For this reason, we refrain from using the high versus low view of Scripture argument as an accusation to discredit and undermine another voice that we're in conversation with. We call this our commitment to treating the text with humility. We bring ourselves to the revelation of God, and we look for a reflection through the, through the posture of Jesus in this word. This ought not be what divides us. This text, this witness, this unbroken thread of the people of God living this out in real communities ought to be an invitation for all of us to join at that table. It's a big table. It's a long banquet table. So, unless you've been under a rock lately, you know that our little global, right, global, local, little church here in South Austin is asking itself some difficult questions right now. And merely asking for some is so upsetting that they can't hang in the conversation. For now, we have agreed to take a personal season of prayer and study to consider some questions that are before us, mainly the question of the LGBT role in our church. And as a group of elders, we're working on this, and we are not in unanimity. We are in unity. But to prepare yourself for this conversation that we're having out loud, let's begin by trying our best to internalize these five commitments. Because here's my promise to us. It's my promise to me. It's my promise to you. If you can internalize this level of love and posture and graciousness, there's no way we fall into factions and divisions because we can hold it together because we love and love is the new law. If that resonates with you, stand on your feet and let's pray. Even if it doesn't stand up because it'd be awkward if you didn't. (laughs) 